This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at GoGo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got you for one full hour of science now, so if you're not going to like that, you might want to run quickly because it's about to start. A couple of guests coming into the studios. Uh, in the studio with me also is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. You're going to do a story later for us? If we've got time, yeah. Oh, we'll have time. Ooh. Don't you worry. We'll have time. I I know, they're pretty good guests today. Yes, indeed. Uh, Dr. Laura. Hi, Dr. Shane. Uh, sporting some cashmere today, I see. Everyone's trying to grab you and hug you. It's just because I want to be touched. <laughs> you, you know, you said this once on, on air once before and it freaked it's, everyone out. It's the joke that keeps on giving. But yeah, 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 yeah. I I've just al- want to be touched. Yeah, I've already had a nice morning. Yeah, because Lyndon hugged you. Yes. Yeah, well. Anyway, um, folks, if you see her on the street, do not hug her. <laughs> She'll freak out. Because she might have diseases from the Doherty Institute. Yeah, that's right. It's that's not right. Hug an Immunologist Day. No, it is not. It should never be Hug an Immunologist Day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, unless they've been, you know, sterilised and, you know, you make sure they're okay. Dr. Ray, good morning. I'm thinking a cashmere sweater. Maybe they should go with containment suit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just don't take it nearer. <laughs> morning, Dr. Shane. Yeah, you well? Uh, I am. Right. I, uh, oh, last night I went to a place. I had a, a We had a cheese risotto. Made in a cheese wheel. Oh, really? It's it's like you know the <clears throat> winter version. I felt like I'd eaten a fondue. That was it's a very cheesy rice thing. Yeah, that, Actually, was, that was. I should say I should make a, a public announcement about something that Dr. Ray will appreciate. There is a certain large hardware store in Melbourne. I'm not going to say the name of it because we don't do that. But they have at the moment some Star Wars themed. Pot plants or pots for plants. Oh, so the, it's only the pots. It's only not the, the plants. Pot. No, you put your own plant in there. Oh, okay. But uh, they're pretty awesome. So oh, if you like, Dr. Ray, you'll be out yeah, there. Yeah, I'm after curious. It's that's, that's building on last year's Star Wars garden gnomes. That yeah, yeah. They have. Now, this is the next one. But they're, they're, yeah, and anyway, suffice it to it's say, niche. good stuff. I feel like this show is converging into eat it and then greening the apocalypse. We've got gardening, we've got food. Anyway. Where's the science, Dr. Shane? Well, we're getting there. But like I said, Laura's responded badly to that, which means you're not going to enjoy your Christmas present this year. Anyway. <laughs> Dr. Linda, what have you got science news for us? Pull us back. Okay, let's see. Let's see if I can salvage this with some science. I read an interesting study this week uh, that I kind of thought I understood, but then I thought I'll bring it along and see if you can help me out, help me understand a little bit more. It's about oxytocin. Oh, yeah. Oxytocin. Makes you feel good? Makes you feel good. It's the love hormone. Is that right, everybody? Yeah. Yes, it's the love hormone. You sound very confident there, Laura. <laughs> it was released when I was touched by Lyndon actually That's reasonable. I like it. Yeah. yeah. So oxytocin is the hormone that we release. It makes us feel love. It makes us care about things that we might not normally care about. It makes us generous. It, it makes, makes us, us a fool for love. It makes us a fool for love. <laughs> okay. And lots and lots of animals have oxytocin in their system. Yep. We work with oxytocin. It's been found to make mice lose their appetite. It's been found to make birds more generous, apparently. Mm. Okay. And this week, researchers in the UK found out that it also makes starfish look like they're about to feed. I know, that sounded like I was going to say something. Wait, wait, what does a starfish look like when it's about to feed? What? Hungry. Looks no, hungry. no, I'll tell you what it looks like. It curls up, kind of hunches over, and then it spits out its stomach. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. that's what okay. I thought. 
That doesn't sound like it's making itself more attractive to the opposite sex. No. So the researchers did say this is the love hormone that does other things in other animals that yep. don't feel love. So starfish... Don't feel love. Don't feel love, That's sad. apparently. But they do, when injected with oxytocin, <clears throat> think they're about to feed. They kind of mimic, oh, my goodness, I'm about to eat. Because what they do is normally they like crawl over a shellfish and they'll hunch yeah, over yeah. it and then... Bleh! spit right. out its stomach and tr- and then start to eat the, shell- the shellfish. But these researchers in the UK injected a- the starfish with oxytocin and found that it did this, it did the same thing, which, I mean, that's interesting because it means that they can figure out why this kind of hormone exists in so many different animals and this is another mm. thing that it does. But also from an ecological point of view, I mean, I don't know how different they are. They've just done this on the uh, standard, normal, common starfish, the common European starfish from the Atlantic Ocean. But the researchers think that it might be useful when it comes to looking at the crown of thorn starfish that are doing their bit to ruin the reef. We're doing our bit and the crown of thorn starfish are doing their bit as well. So get them all lovesick. Get them all lovesick. Get them all lovesick, yeah. Curl them up into a ball, make them look like they're eating even though they're not. Mm. Uh, And then they're also harder to turn over as well if they're in this shape. They flip over Mm. and they're harder to turn back the right way. And so this is a a little kind of hormonal (coughs) step into thinking about starfish management, Mm. which I thought was... Interesting. Yeah, interesting stuff. It's yeah. also interesting to work out what the origin of some of these chemicals are, like how, how far down the species line do you get? Yeah. Um, and when did they first get produced? So, you know, we're obviously a fair way up the chain, but, you know, in something simpler, did they use oxytocin? Mm. Dr. Laura, you want to say something? Well, I was just, I was just thinking about my story and I was thinking how is it becoming a common theme that every story I do kind of borders on sort of, you know, creating the next Frankenstein? Yeah. Yeah, it's a common theme, but Usually. Um, I'm going for it again. Um, right. News that really caught my attention this week was, um, and you guys might have heard it, is that the Japanese government has granted the first permission for the creation of animal-human hybrids. Wow. So um, this animal-human hybrids is not new. We have been creating embryos of human pigs, mm. human sheep, and actually this, this news with... Um, you know, this permission being granted to Japanese scientists, it coincides with just a few days ago, the first human monkey embryo was created in China. So there's been a bit of buzz about that. Um, and this is just injecting human stem cells that have the propensity to develop into any organ, um, injecting that into an embryo of a given species. Okay. But what's new is that generally when you create, say, a human sheep embryo or a human pig embryo, those embryos have to be destroyed after 14 days. Okay. And this is because the thought is that when, you, when you're putting human stem cells into an animal embryo it takes about 14 days for these stem cells to get to the brain and so the ethical considerations Mm. is that those stem cells could go to the brain and implement some sort of human consciousness and that's where scientists have been drawing the line anyway the good news is that the line has now been lifted now sorry what that's the good news (laughs) i'm I'm gonna tell you why it's good news okay okay. Okay, so there's no there's no kind of you know um attempt to create a new species this is all about organ transplantation and so the end goal is to create new or you know a new source of organs for the huge need that we have for organ transplantation right and you know when I think people kind of have this misconception when you're creating human-animal hybrids that you're throwing human stem cells into an embryo and you get this matrix which is going to, you know, create an animal with a human face or something like that. Right. But that is not how it happens. So horse, horse with the, what, what do you call that mythical Centaur. creature? Centaur. Yeah. Centaur. Yeah. There's going yeah. to be no mythical creatures. That's not what's going to happen when uh, scientists are doing this. Okay. But the way that this actually works is that it's, it's all centred around just trying to grow one organ to have human elements within an animal. Mm. So what you have to do first is you have to do gene editing 
every kind of scientist's favourite tool. You can use something like CRISPR-Cas9 to delete out certain genes. And so you take an embryo, say, of a mouse, and you take that embryo and you delete out genes that means that that mouse can't form a pancreas. And then what you do is you throw in human stem cells and you sort of hope for the best that some of those human stem cells will then go on to have that propensity because stem cells can turn into anything, pancreas, liver, lung. But because that mouse can't grow a grow a pancreas, you hope that the, um, you know, the human stem cells will take and start to sort of matrix up. And so the pancreas fill in that those grows, gaps. Yeah, exactly, will fill in the gaps. So you're not going to, you know, it's very targeted. It's organ targeted. You're not going to have this, you know, so new species. Is this because then the resulting organ is going to be much less likely to be rejected? Uh, be rejected? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the end game. So the Japanese scientists that have been granted the, commi- the permission, um, a really big deal in the field of stem cell researcher. His name is um, Hiromitsu Nakaguchi. He works between the University of Tokyo and Stanford. And, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of a bit of hysteria, kind of, if you look up sort of, you know, on Reddit and in the news about what's going on here, but he's starting really, really slowly. So he's got, he's just got the permission to bring the embryos to term. And the first experiments that he's going to do is put human stem cells in a mouse that can't grow a pancreas. So he's just going to try and create a pancreas that's a little bit more humanized. And if, and for the first time, those animals can now be born. So there'll yeah. be sort of a, a hybrid being born. If that works, the next the next stage, and this will really take quite a lot of time, is to move into pigs because ultimately, if you to grow human organs, it's going to have to be big enough because you know human tiny pancreas and a mouse. Not, not <laughs> you so know, good. it's, it's yep. informative for scientists, but mm. it won't go very far. So it's about moving this into sheep and pigs next, um, and so it's really going to take some time. But this you know creates like a huge next step in seeing if you can actually you know get something to live with another organ. And um, they've already done it between rats and mice, so you can put you know rats pancreas into mice and they're actually living but um historically it just it hasn't been working very well the same group they've been making human sheep hybrids and the amount of human cells that will actually take in an embryo to make a sheep's pancreas it's really really low it's actually like one in a thousand to one in ten thousand cells within the pancreas will actually be human that you make so it's low so they're trying to really increase that Hmm. so i think it's really exciting stuff wow we should do a whole show on this at some stage because i got a million questions about the immune system and how it reacts i know there were so many questions around there were so many like ethical considerations around it's such exciting stuff and presumably the competing forces the growing these things in the dish which you know people are doing with organoids and other things as well I'm not sure what the success, relative success. Yeah, of these so with are. with the 3D um, structures of organoids, they haven't got it to a point where actually. What's resem- an organoid? Sorry, so it's, it's like a mini organ. Yes, yeah, so you can grow yeah. you can grow mini livers or mini hearts from stem cells, which again have the propensity to go on and you, to become organs, and you can put them with the right sort of tissue factors so they can make like a mini liver, but it's still not a real liver. It's a mm. sort of 3D structure that you can make that resembles sort of a liver. But something that's also really interesting is kind of the advances in sort of um, you know animal to human transplantations as well, and now with gene editing. Editing, the amount, you know, we pig valves have been used yeah. very successfully mm-hmm. in the heart, but with the idea of putting a, you know, a full kind of heart into a human, now with things like CRISPR, where you can do gene editing, you can actually start to target the regions which, you know, cause the immune system to reject that organ. So mm-hmm. this really huge super advances. Super exciting stuff. Super exciting. We need to do a whole show on this. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Well, also there's 3D printing organs too, mm. which is kind of the next generation on growing it in a dish, which... Yeah. It's gotten further along than you'd expect, Mm. although Mm. it's still pretty far. Mm. Uh, Oh, I actually, what did I have? I was talking about, oh, the shape of the Milky Way. So the Milky Way, which is a spiral galaxy. No, no, not the candy bar. Um, A barred spiral. 
a barred spiral. Thank you for mm-hmm. that, Dr. Shane. Yeah, that's what recent. Is, this what's is recent. That, what's so, that mean? so normal spiral galaxies are like, you know, what your coffee looks like sometimes when you get a fancy barista that does something that looks like goes down the drain. But uh, a barred spiral is where there's literally like a bar in the middle, like a straight bar, and the spirals come off the... The, the arms come off that bar. And more recent research has shown that our galaxy is probably a, a barred spiral, not they're a standard quite spiral. common, are they? A lot yeah, of galaxies are barred. Yeah, pretty mm. common. Well, well, a couple of things I found interesting. I didn't realize how many arms there were on the spiral. Like, mm. they all have names, and they're mm. all names of things, and there's the upper and the lower. But there's actually quite a few. that, And, and so what they actually, this uh, researchers in from Warsaw, University of Warsaw did, was they actually mapped the shape of the Milky Way. Uh, and they did it in a quite interesting way. They used blinking stars, which I'm going to murder the pronunciation. We said Seyfiets? Mm-hmm. Seyfiets? Sure. Yep. Uh, which are these, these variable star pulsate stars that pulsate on periods from kind of like one to a hundred days. And there's enough of them located around the Milky Way. And they actually used 2,431 of them across the Milky Way by using that blinking to figure out the distance between them all to, uh, over the Milky Way to actually map the general shape of the Milky Way. So it's a barred spiral galaxy, and we often think of it as a disk. But it actually turns out it's a, got kind of twisted a little bit and has an S-shape to it. Mm. And, and they actually figured that out by mapping. Yeah, so the ends are kind of, if you look at it from the side, think one end is going up and one end is going down, kind of making an S shape if you look at it from the side. And and, and they kind of went, oh, well, you look at that. But it, they spent a lot of time doing this model and, 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 and not just going, okay, well, let's map it to get the distance between all these stars. Then they made a little star generation model and said, okay, well, let's take that forward and see if it actually puts the stars based on where we think they should be. And they actually got some confirmation there. Hmm. And then you go, well, why is it S twisted? And their best guess was, it's probably bumped into something in the past. Yeah. A small other satellite galaxies, galaxy, other yeah. galaxy. Because yeah. uh, there's actually no great reason for it to have that twist unless it ran into something. Mm. Which is super cool. That's but so beautiful. I, I love the fact, you know, we, we think about this and we have so many great images of every other galaxy in the universe that we can see. Uh, but because we're in ours, it's hard yeah. to work out what its shape is because we're in it. And when you're yeah. looking at it, you know, it's like you're in the middle of a forest and someone and, says, what's the shape of the forest? Yeah. Well, that's actually a little bit hard it, to do. It, and it was a lot of work here because yeah. they used blinking blinking stars, but they had to worry about so much debris and stuff. They actually couldn't just use their optical wavelengths. They used a lot of infrared, which got through a lot of the dust and obscuration that happens. Mm. But it was quite a lot of work to look through everything to find You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Eloise Gibb. She's an Australian Research Council Future Fellow from the Department of Ecology at La Trobe University. Welcome to RRR. Thank you. It's great to have you in there. We we saw your, I saw your press release and I sent it on to the team and we were like very excited because anything to do with ants taking over the world has to be talked about on, on radio. It's a, it's a big deal. You've been studying the ways in which our, I assume our changing climate and changes generally to in the ecology of Australia is affecting the ant population. So first of all, um, how complicated is the ant population of Australia? I mean, we, we know they're there, but what, what's the sort of range and types of ants that we have? Yeah, we have an enormous diversity of ants in Australia. Actually, we're one of the most diverse areas for ants, hmm. um, and our ants are quite unique as well. So the number of species is not fully known. We have not described all our species, but estimates for the numbers of species is around 5,000 species of ants or wow. so. Um, and it's dominated by, uh, particularly by gr- a group 
of ants known as the tyrant ants. Uh, they're quite diverse and uh, aggressive kind of ants that we see. They're actually throughout most of the drier parts of Australia. And um, But we also have some very interesting, unique groups, some that are thermophilic. Um, so well, what's only, that mean? What does that oh, mean? Oh, yeah. So that means yeah. that they're only, they only come out when it's really hot. So they come okay. out in the hottest part of the day and then they, they're just active for that's a small period of time in the middle of the day when it's particularly hot and they're just... I guess they're just so hot. They just run around like crazy. So they're they're really because they're, they're little. They're little. I was almost used the word pause, but their little feet uh, hot on the ground, or is it just the what, what's causing them to move so fast? I think just having the they're so warm that they're right. able to just run around super fast because they're ectothermic. That, that so they need heat. Ants need heat to to kind of get active, and then it's so hot that they're really active. They go nuts. Yeah, yeah. Sugar, sugar to ants. Yeah. So what's the? Um, do we know the? evolutionary sort of drives there that said, you know, ants should be active when it's hot. I mean, it seems to me as though around the world there'd be a lot of locations where there are ants where it's not hot, or is that not the case? Uh, yeah, there are, but ant diversity tends to increase towards the equator, so we, okay. we definitely get more species and more ants uh, as we move towards the equator. Uh, and the people have talked about the evolution of those uh, heat-loving ants as being a response to competition from other ants so mm. that there's a period in the middle of the day where it might be too hot for some of those other ants, the more aggressive ones, and that sort of opens up an activity period for this group of ants that are, are super active and like it really hot so they are mm. not competing directly with some of the other species. And when you say aggressive ants, do you mean aggressive against other ants or aggressive against just anything that comes by? Uh, probably both. Okay. Yeah, they, they are pretty aggressive towards other ants so there's been a bit of work about competitive interactions and how they kind of beat the other ants off resources but they're also aggressive in that they uh, you know they can they prey upon other insects mm. and so they could be aggressive towards those insects uh they can protect their food sources uh they can bite you if you're sitting down on the ground you know they, they, they're a bit yeah. aggressive yeah now the with the changing climate or droughts across australia and so forth i suppose we see these cycles all the time with el nino and other things where you know we have uh, vast dry periods there's there's the whole world's warming up. What does that mean in terms of the sort of diversity and number of ants that we see in Australia? So we've done a long-term study looking at how ants in the Simpson Desert are responding to changes in climate and rainfall over time. And this is a, a 20 or so year study, which is the longest that's been done in that kind of area. And during that time, we found, uh, so just looking at what's happening with the rainfall, we're getting increasing uh, fluctuations. So we're kind of getting higher peaks of rainfall, but more extreme events. But overall sort of a tendency for more rainfall, but, but they are really big big events and then droughts kind mm, of thing. Yep. And then we're also getting increases in um, temperature over that time. And what we're finding in that situation is that we're getting responses by the ants to increases in rainfall, which is for most ant species that's it's positive to have an increase in rainfall. And it's been particularly strong for the more aggressive species, the tyrant ants. Uh, so they have really kind of boomed when we have those uh, increases in rainfall. And uh, so other species have, have also increased. And I think that probably what's going on is ants are a bit 
a bit more tolerant of those low periods because they have a colonial structure and they're able to uh, so go sort of retreat back into their colony underground, be protected, mm. and then they can uh, wait for the good good times to become more active. And they can also choose the time of day they're active and, you know, so when they're active. And that I think that gives them a bit more resilience than some other species. Mm. So, Eloise, you were saying that the tyrant ants in particular really are liking this change towards quite a boom and bust rainfall cycle and increasing temperatures. Does that mean other species are suffering in in place of that? So it doesn't appear to be that any of the other ants are suffering. According to our, our data, none of the other ants are actually declining. I think the rainfall is good for everybody, but particularly good for those guys. Uh, so there is some competition, but I guess it's not suppressing the other species. Um, but maybe it's having broader effects on the other kinds of non-ant things that that those tyrant ants are interacting with. So I, I had two questions. One, did tyrant ants include bull ants in the really, I mean, I moved here a long time ago, but it's a disturbingly large ant to come up across. But um, <clears throat> the other question I asked was the boom and bust cycle that's causing tyrant ants to grow, how is that affecting what they eat? Is that is that actually what's driving their growth, that something's more plentiful than it was before? Yeah, so in answer to the first question, the... Um, the bull ants are a different group from the okay. tyrant ants. So they're, they're in the genus Mimesia and the, the tyrant ants are the Iridomomax genus. Okay. They're quite different. They're not as big. Okay. So um, they don't, as individuals, they don't look as scary, <laughs> but you can get so like a lot more than, than you get bull ants. Um, and in terms of uh, responses of the food sources to the boom and bust, I think, yeah, we, we started to look at, we haven't got the data on the um, on the food sources so much over time. We've got a bit on on like basically answer. I guess answer relying on plants, and we do see that uh, when you get rain, you get more flowering, you get more seeds produced, and those plants are then a source for other invertebrates. So uh, sap sucking bugs, for example, are a real major source of uh, of food for tyrant ants. Tyrant ants rely on having a sugar source, which actually they can't take it directly from the plant, but what they do is the bugs suck the sap from the plant and then there's just too much sugar in it, so they kind of squirt a lot of sugar out their backsides and then the ants tend them and kind of milk them like a cow. And so that's a really major source for tyrant ants and having that resource sort of, but it's likely to, that that increases after rainfall and then that gives them lots of energy then they can run around and eat more things and, mm. and yeah, that probably is a major driver of their booms. Wow. So we know a bit more about the food for ants. Now, what about ants being food for other species? You know, we generally on this show hear more depressing information about how climate change is going to reduce biodiversity and be bad for lots of different species. But if there are species that eat ants, does that mean that it's going to be good for them as well? Uh, it probably does. Um, I don't know so much about that, but I do know that they are eaten by they're eaten by particularly by lizards in that area. So uh, I'm not so, so sure that many of the the mammal species uh, are eating ants. Um, so that it should theoretically be a positive impact on on lizard species if they're able to respond quick enough to the resource boom in in ants. But otherwise, maybe they're less likely to catch the tyrant ants. I mean, all I'm hearing is that, you know, it's the rise of the badass ants, you know, in All in ants response. are ba- badass yeah, ants. The tyrant ants, I mean, I feel like Ray's got some relief about there being less bull ants. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, Possibly. 
Well, a buoyant can withstand a shoe. That's the the difference, right? You can stand them, and they just sort of they're like they they can't handle it. Uh, Eloise, with regards to you know, this is an interesting question for me. We often talk about which species are at risk of extinction from you know from changes in climate. Are there groups of ants that are seriously at risk? Are we seeing any data that sort of says you know this whole range, and maybe it's to use your technical term, not the bad badass. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you pronounced well said. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, ants. Is, is there are there groups of ants that are uh, under threat? Well, there are certainly, uh, for example, we have a different set of ants that you might find in in rainforest areas. Mm -hmm. So with rainforests in Australia being quite small and and under threat, they're certainly those kind of ants will be probably negatively Mm. affected by climate change. And we've done some work in the past just looking at responses to not so much climate but uh, looking at disturbances and so human disturbances tend to negatively affect ants and particularly small species and large species so you tend not to get kind of mediocre ants Mm, Um, and the species that tend to be most affected are other predatory species. Right. It seems to me uh, one of the things I always hear in, in some of this is that insects will, some insects will fare fairly well because they're fast to adapt. Is this, uh, presumably this is true for ants as well. I mean, as you say, they, they can deal with a range of temperatures, a range of wetness conditions and so forth, and they, they seem to be pretty good at adapting to, to all of that relative to a lot of the above-ground species that we see. Well, I think... We have, so I guess insects with their fast generation time are probably a bit more able to adapt, uh, but they are, they're also, there are also, I mean, as per any group, there's going to be species that are more vulnerable mm. than others. So there's a, quite a lot of variation in ants uh, in how they're responding. Yeah. Well, it, it's fascinating stuff. I had no idea we had more than 5,000 species of ants in Australia. That's a big number. And I, I'm guessing, like with all insects, it's probably a third of the real number or something. We always seem to under underquote these numbers to some degree because we just don't know. Eloise, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us. Good luck with this ongoing work. It's really quite fascinating. We, I think that we've had an ant expert on the show in my 27 years doing the show. I don't think we've ever... All my knowledge came from the film, Ants. Which, <laughs> oh, as you can imagine, yep, useless. Thanks so much for giving us some valuable intel. Right, thanks for having me. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Distinguished Professor and Vice-Chancellor's Fellow Jenny Graves from La Trobe University. Jenny, welcome back to RRR. We've had you on before. Yes, you have. Thank you very much, Shane. It's great to have you back because I saw something that uh, interested me because uh, as being a former aquarium keeper, you know, I loved having fish and there were some fish that just fascinated me and these are, well, related to the ones you've been working on. You've been looking at these fish that all of a sudden can just change their sex, change their gender. Give us a bit of a run through. What, what's happening there? Well, a lot of fish can change their gender and do so quite regularly. I think angel fish turn mm-hmm. from um, male to female when they get big enough, for yep. instance. Yep. But these fish, the blue wrasse, are special because uh, they do it on a social cue. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a fish person at all, but I've always been really fascinated with these guys because what happens is normally a male who's got a blue head uh, keeps a harem of um, many up to some hundreds, I think, females, which are sort of smaller and yellow, Mm -hmm. and he protects them. But if you remove that male, the biggest female becomes male in 10 days. I mean, this is extraordinary because we're not talking about 
We're not talking about a, a change with age, as you said, with angelfish and other fish. We're talking about the dude disappears and all of a sudden one of the female fish changes itself biologically into a male, which presumably means, you said, colour, size, gender, the whole lot. Well, I, I, as I believe it, uh, she changes her behaviour in minutes. Wow. Her yeah. colour in hours and then the, the, the ovary kind of rots away and a testis di- differentiates and in 10 days she's making sperm and mating with her erstwhile sisters. Right, yeah. So how does, uh, I, I've got a million questions here, but we're talking about a genetic shift within the fist. Uh, you know, so the proteins that are actually being made have changed how does the, i mean the fish is not doing this consciously how does the how does this process work at all well i for a long time we've wondered because uh usually the the environment the changes sex is something like temperature and you can imagine how that might have a direct effect sure. but this is actually visual mm. the fish sees and recognizes that she's the biggest mm-hmm. and how does that translate into changes in the way genes act mm, because yeah. that's what we're talking about the genes have not changed right, yeah. but the way the genes act have changed and what the group the group I've been working with is a group um, in New Zealand headed by Neil Gemmel, who's an ex-student of mine from way, way back. And they've been looking at this for a long time. Uh, and most recently what they've done is uh, take a male away from uh, several groups in situ in the Caribbean and then sample the fish um, after one day, two days, three days, up to 10 days and then look at what genes are being expressed. Mm. And so what they found was predictably all the female genes, particularly the ones that make female hormones, uh, precipitously collapse Wow. Very, very quickly uh, get much lower. And at the end, the male genes all start getting more and more active. So that's kind of what we expected. But what we didn't expect is in the middle, you get a lot of the genes that are involved in what we call pluripotency. That is uh, the very first genes to uh, become active in the embryo that really determine that the, the cells can't do anything. They're now going to be a particular organ or a particular uh, blood cell or what, mm. whatever. So these become active in the middle. So you're getting a real de-differentiation of the cells um, in the gonad and a real re-differentiation, sort of starting from scratch to make a testis. Uh, I mean, one of the things I find fascinating here, as you said, there's such a visual cue for this occurring. But, uh, I mean, there's a visual cue that cue that, that that particular male fish is gone. But then when, you, when you're talking about groups of hundreds of female fishes, someone has some visual ruler going on as well that says, I'm the largest one. Is it, do, you, do you see scenarios where 10 of them try and do this in one go and they fight it out? Or is it, or is it always just one that works out, I'm the largest female fish, it's going to be me? Well, my, my interest in these fish stemmed from a meeting I went to years and years, decades ago, in which this guy, I think it was from Stanford, was just uh, discussing some experiments that just sounded so much fun. Um, he took a, a female fish on one side of a glass plate in an aquarium yep. and then put a, a um, larger female fish on the other side and this female did not change, thought better of this, uh-uh. And then he put a smaller fish there and she did change right away. She changed oh, wow. to a male. 
then he put a mirror in and the, the poor fish went mad. <laughs> Goodness, <laughs> am I the biggest? Am I the fairest of them do. all? What am right. I going to do? Yeah. So it, it is actually visual. You know, there was, yeah. there was no, uh, nothing going, yeah. no chemical interaction. So yeah. somehow that fish must figure out I'm the biggest. And we think probably it's a stress response that actually feeds into the cortisol, feeds into uh, probably uh, an, a number of epigenetic pathways that are stimulated to uh, turn down some genes and turn up mm. some genes. So we think the stress of wondering whether I'm the biggest is actually what turns on the the whole process. Yeah. It just it, to me, it just opens up that whole idea of how much our genes can be affected by our environment. You know, that that's the part that, and, and in a short t- time frame too. If it can happen in the fish, it can happen in other uh, life forms as well. Laura, oh well, I'm just jumping off my chair. Sorry, I'm so excited. And, and Jenny, pretty much just like kind of came in there with what I was going to ask because I was wondering what's got to be the trigger event, you know, when the fish thinks it's me. And I was thinking it's got to be like hormones or something like that that's got to then trigger in the epigenetic changes to start switching things on and off. Mm. It's, it's, it's so, okay, so it's hormones and it's stress that's got to be that trigger event. We, we think so, and we, we see that in other systems too. Um, I've done some work with uh, colleagues at the University of Canberra on the dragon lizard, and that uh, seems to be a, a response, um, an epigenetic response to temperature this time. And again, it seems to go, go through uh, a whole lot of epigenetic changes, and we're starting to understand what those changes are. So we think probably they're using the same kind of pathway, but it's not a temperature-sensitive protein that we always yeah. thought was involved. It probably is some kind of, of hormonal response. And it seems to go through rather peculiar uh ways of trying to turn off genes, you know, not not in an easy way at all, but a difficult way to turn off genes. So you never know what you're going to find out when you look into it closely. Mm-hmm. Because also about that, you know, hormonal and dominant response, I, I keep thinking of clownfish where it's sort of the other way around, where they're all born male and then the most yeah. dominant one becomes the female. Mm-hmm. So is that sort of probably working through a similar way where it's kind of the, you know, it's it's my time to shine and then there's the, <laughs> there's the hormone and then you turn into a female? Don't know if that's hormone. Uh, there are lots of things that happen when you get big enough and it seems like you know females need to be big in, a, in order to lay lots of eggs and so uh, there's, there must be some sort of trigger which could be physiological, doesn't need to be hormonal. So is that switch from male to female in the clownfish, that happens much earlier than the fish that we're talking about? It happens generally, so it's, it's a, a regular stage. So it can it's, happen at any time? Yes, at, not at any time. I think the fish has to be big enough in order to be female. Mm. It, it's fascinating, though. Is there ever a scenario where it reverses? Uh, uh, I believe once you've become male, that's, that's it. it. So that's it. So they can't, yeah, they, yeah. I was curious as to that, whether you can go back. I, uh, as far as I know, you never go back. Uh, I mean, you can think of it as being a very clever way to limit the number of males. You don't mm. need that many males. <laughs> True that. <laughs> you know, one male can make an awful lot of sperm and uh, fertilize the eggs of, you know, many, many females. Yeah. And so it's a very clever way of ensuring that there's only one male and there's um, going to be no males fighting. Uh, I mean, that male does, does scare off other males. Yeah, interesting. So we're talking about the blue ras, Jenny, but do you think this technique or this kind of social process can be expanded 
to other fish or even other species? Uh, I know there are other wrasse species that have similar sorts of sex change. It's not quite so sudden and dramatic. And I, th- I think the group I work with chose the blue wrasse because it's very sudden. It can be induced. You know, you take the male fish away and, you, and then you, the mm. stopwatch starts. Yeah. And so that makes it much easier to study. Yeah. Jenny, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I've had uh, a fish called Anthias in my tank before, which is you know, the exact same thing. You get about seven or eight of them and there's always one male and, you know, you can work ah. out you can work out which female changes and they're related to wrasses and same sort of stuff. But it's just fascinating to, to see such a rapid shift in the way our genes, you know, produce effects uh, over a short space of time. And it gives a, a real insight, I think, into just how our environment can change us and how, you know, stress and other things can change us. So thanks so much for chatting to us again. It's always a pleasure to have you in the studio and, and hear these great explanations. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Fun to talk to you. Distinguished Professor Jenny Graves from La Trobe University. Three. Triple. Uh, the last 10 minutes of the show, we're handing over to Dr. Lynn, and she's got something extraordinarily important to tell us. Oh, I'm, I think you might be overselling <laughs> it a little bit. I, what I wanted to share was a bit of a story, a bit of a, a question that a friend came to me with recently. So, you know, I'm a climate scientist. I work a lot with climate data, and they came to me and they said, oh, Lyndon, I just need a holiday. I need to get out of this city. It's cold. It's grey. I've had enough. Can you find me? Is this a friend in Sydney? <laughs> a friend in Sydney. No, they've just had 15 days above 20 degrees in July, yeah, yeah. which is a record, 160-year <laughs> record that's just been broken for the oh. number of 20-degree days in July. No, it wasn't a friend in Sydney. It's a friend who lives in Melbourne. They said, I want to go somewhere where the water is clear. I want to go somewhere where it's calm, where it's sunny all the time. And I want to just get away from people. I don't want to be near anyone. I just want to be alone, beautiful, clear water, sunny skies every day. It was me. <laughs> I was that friend. And she recommended Williamstown Beach? (laughs) No. Uh, Although you can take notes. Take notes. (laughs) So I had a think and I had a bit of a look around and I sort of did some data analysis and then I thought, aha, I've got just the spot for you. (laughs) Small problem. uh, There's no land there. And it's really, really hard to get to. Mm, Okay. This is, of course, Point Nemo. Point Nemo. Has anyone heard of Point Nemo? I've heard of Nemo and I've heard of Point. I've Ah. heard of Finding Nemo. Ah, so Nemo, (laughs) apparently, Nemo is Latin for no one. Oh, okay. And this is a point in the centre of the South Pacific. That is the furthest point from land in the ocean. So it is around 1,600 kilometres away from the nearest land, which is a few islands, over 2,000 kilometres away from the nearest sort of inhabited space. And for like um, for reference, so the closest humans that are normally near Point Nemo are astronauts on the space station. Oh, right. Because yeah. the space station's 100 kilometres. 500, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, 100 kilometres up. 500 kilometres, I think. Oh, no, maybe even less. Yep. Kilometres up. Pretty, pretty close mm. compared to how far away all the land is, nice. right? It's in the middle of the South Pacific, no people around, although sometimes spaceships, it's also known as a bit of a spaceship graveyard because a mm. lot of spaceships then get, spacecrafts get yep. dumped there because it's not going to hit anybody. Well, unless you've sent your friend there unless for a relaxing sent, holiday. Unless I've sent you there for a relaxing <laughs> so holiday. Is, is this Clearwater or going to end with there's a plastic All all the world's plastic is showing up there. No, there is some plastic there, but it's actually... So the South Pacific, the south part of the South Pacific is uh, 
got a massive circulation current around it, right? We get these huge circulation currents in the atmosphere and the ocean. The way that the Earth spins around, you know, we sort of get warm water and warm atmosphere in the middle of the equator and cold at the edges. The Earth just wants to balance itself out, so it kind of rises and falls or falls and then comes back up again, depending if you're looking at the air or the ocean. And then we spin around. So we get a few different bands of sort of high pressure and low pressure and different things spinning around. So in the South Pacific, we have this current, the South Pacific gyre, like a big whirlpool, right, that goes down from uh, up from Chile and then across yeah. towards Australia and New Zealand, down and then, yeah. you know, along the southern part it's got there. To say, it's a whirlpool. It's a it's thousand kilometres wide. It's a wide, massive yeah. whirlpool. It's almost four times as big as the US, this yeah, yeah, giant right. gyre, yeah. this huge whirlpool, right? So it's got this huge whirlpool that spins around, right? And then it's got this big high pressure system that sits across the top of it so it doesn't get a lot of rain it's just sunny all the time mm-hmm. big plonking high there but it also is beautifully clear there is some pollution there is some plastic that's been found there but it's pretty clean it's some of the cleanest ocean water in the world but it's got pretty much no nutrients mm-hmm. right and the other reason why i thought my friend might not want to go there apart from the fact that there's actually nowhere to be because it's in the middle of the ocean is that it's known as a desert it's an ocean desert because there's no nutrients, right? The ocean water generally gets its nutrients from sort of things that have come off from the land. Mm. It's a long, long way from land, so it can't come from that. It can't come from the winds. It can't come from upwelling from near the coast. It can't come from above, right, because it's really sunny all the time and there's no clouds, and it doesn't really come from below because you get this intense extra UV radiation coming in, lots of sun, so you get a really stratified ocean, warm at the top and colder below, and so it's harder for... War, um, cooler, nutrient-rich water to rise up to the surface, right? So it's dead zone. It's really, mm. it's pretty much a desert, an ocean desert. I'd never heard this term before, and I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah, Maybe my yeah. friend should go there, do a little bit of, do a bit of work, do some science, and yeah. check it out. But that's not that easy to do either, because it's pretty far away. Uh, it's pretty hard to get to, and not a lot of ships go there. It's not a good place to. It's not a fast way to get from A to B. But recently there was a group from the Max Planck Institute who took a ship. They took six weeks and they went from Chile across, straight across the gyre. Not sure if they popped in to say good day to my mate or they just kept going. All the way to New Zealand and they sampled. They did a lot of sampling of mm. the water from about 20 metres in depth all the way down to about five kilometres to the bottom of the sea floor. And the, there were some pictures that they, there was a picture that they posted on their website on New Year's Eve. They saw a puffer fish. Oh, wow. And that was worthy of <laughs> yeah, comments yeah. because it's just, it's so dead there. And they're just everywhere. You find puffer fish all over the place. Exactly. If you you stand on the pier just down at the bay here, you look out there for long enough to see a puffer fish. Yeah, exactly. Can't walk into the water without running into 20 puffer fish. But at Point Nemo, (laughs) one puffer fish was a really big Big deal. deal. Because there's no nutrients and so there's no... And that one was lost. (laughs) So lost. Finding finding poor puffer fish. He was looking for Nemo to help him out. But these guys, have uh, they did do a lot of sampling and they found that there were some nutrients there there were some some uh, microorganisms and they found some mm. algae so because the because the water is so clear algae that you would normally expect to find at the surface you down. find further down because wow. the water is so clear and they also found these uh, microorganisms that you might expect further in the depths where there's not a lot of oxygen there's not a lot of sunlight up higher and higher levels, which they thought, oh, that's interesting. It's low oxygen water, but there's also a lot of UV. So maybe this organism is kind of changing the way it interacts with high UV and low low nutrient levels, which is kind of opening up 
opening up op- uh, options for how these different organisms are going to evolve. But of course, Sh- uh, Ray, you're right. It's not all. Let's all go and check out Point Nemo because it's so fascinating. There is plastic there and also these oceanic deserts, these regions of low nutrients in the ocean are getting bigger. Yeah, I was about to ask, yeah. you kept on saying higher UV. I'm like, has anyone ever sampled this region before we put a hole in the ocean layer? <laughs> well, I guess it's like, not. Like, have we made an ocean desert by frying it with UV? No, no. I don't think, I think the ocean desert is sort of there, has been there for a while. It's a key part of the ocean sort of global chemistry cycle, a bit in the carbon cycle. And it's been there for a while. It makes sense from a circulation point of view. But uh, as ocean temperatures warm, it gets harder for upwelling and mm. nutrient rich water to get to the surface. Mm. And so they, there was a study that was published back in 2008, and they only had nine or ten years of data, but they did find almost 15% increase in regions that would classify by some descriptions as a sort of oceanic desert, which mm. is pretty, well, pretty the, sad. The, the part that I find interesting about this is if you if you told me this was a region where the temperature was really low and, you know, it was closer to one of the poles mm. and et cetera, et cetera, yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But but it's quite the opposite to that. It's quite a temperatures, quite a di- it's quite a dynamic area in terms of high temperatures and so forth. Yeah. And generally, you know, even when you look at extreme depths where there are hydro thermal vents and so forth, when you have high temperatures mm. and, and, nutri- and nutrients, which is the key, all of a sudden you have diversity. Yes. But, but this, is, this is quite an unusual region in that you, you have those high temperatures, you have the variation in temperature, but feeding on what? Fe- you know, exactly. Feeding on there. what? It's yeah. just, there's nothing. And I think it would be, the descriptions I've read about the water in this space, the colour of the water, just because of... Crystal clear. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, it's like a violet, right? Because yeah. it's so yeah, deep. Right. The sunlight can just penetrate so far that it just has this colour that you wouldn't really see anywhere else. Yeah. And it's an area that, you know, um, last month we talked a lot about space and we had mm, lots of discussions mm, off yeah. air about, no, but there's lots of things that we don't know on Earth as well. Space is amazing, but Earth is also amazing. And this is one place where... We just don't, it's so remote, then we, there's so much yeah. we don't know about it. So, Laura, if you do need a holiday, I don't know, <laughs> maybe. I can't I'll, get past the potential of being hit by a spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to send it to Lake Vostok. For those of ah. you who have been listening to the show for a long time, you know that uh, they would take care of Laura for good. Because <laughs> we'd have to bury her under a couple of kilometres of Antarctic ice. But it's pristine. It's pristine and untouched. What You'd a love it. happy end to the I know, show. I know. That's the way we like to do it here, folks. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We should say uh, we're only two weeks away from the Radiothon, which is really exciting. Next week, uh, I will probably just wet my pants on the show because I'm hoping we are having a couple of the original hosts of the Curiosity Show um, on the show. And for those of you who are all my age or older. Um, yeah, everyone in the studio is looking at me <laughs> blankly. Um, these guys are heroes. Um, but they, they were putting science on air back when science wasn't so cool. So uh, some people will, re- will remember them very, very well, as, as I do. But uh, yeah, hopefully that will happen. Dr. Linden, Dr. Laura, Dr. Ray, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to see you all. And Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. We had some amazing guests today. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. We'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.